0: Welcome to Calling All Stations, the podcast which brings you up to date with all the transport news. And with me is my usual companion, Mark Walker of Cogitamus. Mark, what are we doing today? Hello, Christian. For
1: this episode, we're going to be looking at the latest developments and reports on HS2. We are then going to consider the impact of low traffic neighbourhoods with particular reference to the controversy around 15-minute communities. We'll also have a look at the UK government's response to Chris Skidmore's report on achieving net zero, with particular reference to transport, of course. And then finally, uh, as your parting thought, uh, you'll be talking about the propensity of Football clubs to
0: use private aviation. Great. Well, look, I try to avoid always talking about railways first on this, but in this case, this absolutely devastating report about what's been going on uh, at Euston around the construction of uh, the the new station uh, is so powerful that uh and and i think actually presents an existential threat to hs2 uh that i thought we had to start off uh with uh discussing it so a little bit of background on this i mean houston has always been uh there's been a big question mark over quite what happens at houston so initially they proposed an 11 platform station and they found that that nowhere came within the budget, which rather arbitrarily has been set at some 2.6 billion in 2019 prices for uh, the HS2 station. And so they said, okay, you have to find another solution. And they went for a 10 platform, uh, slightly simpler kind of uh, design. And lo and behold, that came out as uh, at just about the same price as the 11 platform one at around 4.4 billion nearly a couple of billion over uh the uh budget so um a problem with it I, and this is honestly this report is is worth anyone reading it who you know supports hs2 because there are some real lessons to be learned
1: and this is a report and, from the national audit office
0: that's it? right sorry yes yeah. the national audit office uh report uh, published uh um in uh, uh, just uh, the, the last few days of March. And uh, what, what the pro- one of the problems has been that there's actually three projects uh, that are involved here. One is uh, the, the new station, the new HS2 station. The second is uh, revamping the existing station, which we all hate, don't we? <laughs>
1: And, and, and the the story of which you describe in great detail
0: in your book about British Rail, as I recall. Uh, uh, indeed, and and uh, and indeed, my previous book, Cathedrals of Steam. So I've, right. I've written about it as well in there and and you know what a what a dreadful station it was and it was built without seats and whatever and it has improved a bit but it's still a ghastly space compared with what was there before so uh, re- redesigning that and then a third scheme about what to do with the uh, uh the space over you know how uh, how much how high do you go and what do you build and 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 so on and do you try and create a Uh, you know a fabulous uh, new development which is the idea with businesses and housing and and whatever and the problem is one one problem has been that these three projects were run by different people and so were not properly uh, coordinated you know one was run by network rail one was run by hs2 limited and the third one uh, the over uh, space uh, thing was operated by a private company called lend lease so these three lots of people didn't particularly coordinate with each other what they were doing and so on. But also there's a there's a more fundamental problem here, which is that and every time I've looked at HS2, and I know you're more of a supporter of it than me, and, and I have been opposed to it, but I really do try and take a, a kind of objective view of this. And the problem has always been that whenever you look at these uh, aspects of the project, it, It just seems that costs are never kind of under control and and that that, they just seem to go away and produce these amazingly expensive kind of ideas with nary a thought for uh, the budget. I I don't know what you think about that, Mark.
1: I think what I find most baffling from the description that you've given, which is, of course, all derived from the National Audit Office, report is this lack of coordination between the different uh, outputs that were being sought the hs2 station the network rail uh, improved station and the and the airspace i think that's the correct term airspace development um right of the of the, the of the sort of um area over the buildings and around the buildings um but um uh, and and you would have thought but i mean there are there are many uh well regarded uh firms who provide that sort of project management and coordination and and it it strikes me as really odd that this dislocation has occurred and i'm wondering whether and i'm interested in your opinion on this question whether that's because of the changing ambitions of a succession of governments in relation to hs2 and the sort of the various points at which they've blown hot and cold over whether hs2 would happen whether it would happen be delivered over the complete length and of course really importantly the really at uh, the very recent decision to slow down construction of hs2 between old oak common and euston itself
0: yes no i i think that is definitely right and, and the problem there is uh that there's you know too many cooks spoiling uh the broth right, here yeah. that the department for transport whose objectives change with different ministers um and uh, uh in the face of different circumstances like rising costs uh and you read this report uh mark and you'll see that Almost every second word is the Department for Transport. You know, the Department for Transport allowed this. They didn't allow us to do that, uh, or it didn't allow HS2 Limited to do that. Uh, they wanted this, uh, then they changed their mind. Um, and uh, you know, you just can't run a project like that. I mean, what should have happened is that HS2 Limited should, you know, have have had the power to make decisions. There's even commercial decisions here that are being made uh where, where they are asking uh the dft can we do this about you know the commercial aspects of uh, as you say the airspace above and the dft says no no you can't spend this money uh, even though spending that money might then result in an increase in in income eventually uh from the scheme so it it's it's just you know, far too many people involved in this, and no kind of single structure. And as you say, no proper uh, project management. So, so really, uh, the idea
1: was that HS2 Limited would be given a mandate, set up at arm's length from the government, and told to get on with it. But in fact, they're they're having more than just scrutiny applied to them. They're having to almost be line managed by. The department for transport which is then itself being line managed by the his majesty's treasury presumably yes uh, yes
0: no exactly i didn't mention the treasury but yes yeah, spot on um and uh you know that that it's micromanagement in <laughs> the same way that they micromanage uh, uh franchises and and uh i i just don't understand why they think that this is a a good way of doing things you know uh, exactly hs2 limited I mean, look, their chief executive gets paid, you know, a, a hefty six figures sum. I think it's in the region of he's the you know highest paid civil servant in the country in the region of, I think six or seven hundred thousand pounds a year. You know, surely if you're paying somebody that amount, uh, they should be given the right to uh, ability to to make decisions. So now um, they had six hundred and fifty people working on Euston, um, and. You know, there's two aspects of that. One is that they're making a lot of them redundant, and that's going to cost money, and so that's on. That's extraordinary,
1: the whole... isn't it? That there yeah. are now a new civil engineer over this week reported redundancies amongst uh, the the project teams.
0: Uh, absolutely amazing. When you know there is clearly a shortage of that sort of <laughs> uh, those sort of skills, so uh, that's happening. And then look, I have a bit of a personal interest in this, and I've written about this in in the forthcoming issue of Rail Magazine, which, which is that. Euston uh, has just been devastated. Now, my favourite restaurant happens to be in in Euston, uh, Diwanas in in Drummond Street, which is next to the building site. And, and fortunately, he he's managed to survive. I know the owner quite well, and he thought he would go bust, but actually, uh, he, I presume a lot of the construction workers have Indeed, been eating and so
1: that's right.
0: Yes, but now they won't be there, so they're standing now these six hundred and fifty people. But they're also they're leaving a whole chunk of north london completely devastated they destroyed a pub a, a very nice council estate which i went to before it was uh, demolished Talked to the local residents uh they demolished a, an old hospital uh various other kind of uh perfectly nice buildings emptied a know, cemetery
1: they, as well as i recall the cemetery very was very interesting over. tv
0: program and i think stanley johnson's house i think i'm not sure i think they had to buy it i'm not sure they actually demolished it but uh um, that's a great shame, and uh, it's it's you know it's like the Blitz. You know it is it is it is very disconcerting. To, I cycle through there quite a lot, and it, it it's there's kind of mud and temporary traffic lights and and all, all the, the paraphernalia of kind of roadworks and stuff. And there is something very deeply depressing about it. And now we find, Mark, that there's not going to be a station there till 2041. <laughs> at the earliest by which time i'll be in my 90s so i might not make it um you're 10 years younger than me so you might get there mark but... i'm sure i'm sure you'll make it as i've said before question
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm sure but you'll make it
0: it is shocking that they're just leaving this you know they've got to find a temporary use for it i mean they've got to kind of turn it into some sort of temporary park or something because they can't just uh, leave this whole swathe of of london but let, just to end on this, because we could talk about it all day, but just to end on this, I, I mean, they're left between a rock and a very hard place, right? What do they do about this project? Because, you know, this is not going to get any cheaper. They've admitted that, that this is going to cost uh, more money. Uh, there's a the whole issue of Old Oak Common, which is now going to be in use for at least the first seven, eight years of the scheme, depending on when it opens, um, as, as the terminus station. And they've got to build the whole connection with Elizabeth line. That that's going to cost five billion as well, surely. You know, it's the biggest station that has been built uh, in the UK for decades. Um, and uh, I think there is a real existential threat to the scheme. I I previously have said, oh look, you know, you have to go on with it. We've got all these tunnels and the Chilterns. You can't really abandon this whole scheme. But but Mark, I mean. If they're going to spend another 50, 60 billion on this to chase the 20 billion that they've already spent, 25 billion that they're already committed to, is that worthwhile ultimately? I mean, you know, it's, it's you know, somebody's going to make these decisions. Are we going to end up with a railway line that runs between Curzon Street, which is not even quite in central Birmingham, to Old Oak Common, which certainly isn't in central London. It's all very well saying, oh, there'll be Elizabeth line there. But what about... People like me who'd cycle to Euston Station or or people who uh, get dropped off there or take the bus there or whatever, you know. Um, it's it, Old Oak Common is not a suitable place to be the permanent uh, terminus of our high speed line.
1: As you say, we could probably fill a whole programme with this, but we, we need to stop there. Uh, And But what what we will do for our listeners is we'll put onto our Twitter account the link to the National Audit Office report so that you can read it for yourselves. And uh, that's uh, at all stations pod. And we will no doubt return to this subject in the future. Christian, where I live, we don't appear to have any low traffic neighbourhoods, but I know they're extremely controversial in some places. Would you like to explain
0: some of the background? Well, this is really a, a new name for an old concept, right? The old concept is, and it used to be called in, in this in the 80s and 90s, you know, stop rat running. In other words, you block off some uh, an end of a, a residential street to stop people using it as a shortcut through to the local high street or or whatever, right? And in the eighties uh, and nineties, th- these were implemented in lots of places. Indeed, I happen to live uh, uh, in Islington and one that was implemented at least thirty years ago. You know, and um, you know, as a result, I am uh, overlooking my uh, little street, and you know, you get about half a dozen cars. A day going through it because you know people can't drive through it. Uh, if it was a shortcut between uh, Camden Town and Tufnell Park, because it could be, there would be hundreds of cars going through. So, so that sounds very uncontroversial, and um, in, in certainly in the uh, you know in the last century when these were implemented, there wasn't much controversy. You know, people sort of thought, oh yeah, this is a, is a kind of obvious thing, but now. Uh, they've been implemented around the country in various places, but then COVID kind of led to uh, a big increase in them because uh, the government wanted to encourage uh, more cycling, walking, they wanted to reduce uh, air pollution and so on. And they encouraged local councils to implement these, sometimes without any consultation and just block off streets, put some planters there, Um, and make uh, the through traffic go uh, a longer way around and there is more through traffic these days because of sat navs which um, often uh, send you uh, through kind of less busy shortcuts to uh, save time and uh, they're kind of calibrated to do that so uh, there is much more through traffic on these residential roads but one would have thought, okay, this is, you know, reasonably uh, uncontroversial, but it's proved to be that the sort of transport issue uh, uh, led the uh, transport agenda for quite a long time. You know, that became the big controversy because uh, people argued that they couldn't get around, They, they, you know, their deliveries would take much longer. They even claimed quite wrongly that, some people you wouldn't be able to drive to their front door. And that's actually not true. There's always a way to get to people's front door, but sometimes it might mean that people have to drive a longer way around or go via a main road and so on. And the second area of controversy, which I I, I think is also questionable, is that uh, they say, well, you're pushing traffic onto busier roads uh, main roads uh, on which poorer people tend to live. so you're benefiting the rich people in these nice leafy residential areas by blocking off uh, their roads whereas uh, the poorer people on the main roads uh, are now suffering even more from uh, uh, the, the heavy traffic And this has escalated to an extent where there is a concept uh, mark called, 15-minute uh, uh, neighbourhoods. And there the idea is that you can get to everything within a 15-minute walk or possible cycle ride to the local school, uh, the local medical centre, uh, local shops, and, and so on. And therefore, you're much less likely to need to use your car. Um, and this, is, this idea has been transformed by some people uh, protesting against ltns and protesting against uh, these 15 minute neighborhoods into the idea that you're actually trapped in these neighborhoods you're not allowed out of them and and they've pointed to oxford where in oxford they want to divide up various neighborhoods into areas where uh, yes there would be cameras if you drove between those particular areas and you would be charged for doing so or you'd only be a uh, able to do a certain number of journeys a year for free and if you kind of did more than that they would then charge you or so there are various ideas kind of around there and they've had demonstrations there which some elements of the far right have joined in kind of stabbing around saying you know freedom to to, to go where we want and you know we don't want these 15 minute uh neighborhoods and it's a reflection really of of two things i think it's a, it's a reflection of People's obsession with cars and the fact that, you know, they think that the ability to drive anywhere uh, at any time at no cost is a fundamental human right. But it's also a reflection of the way that social media has now uh, polarised issues and uh, made what, you know, one would have thought a fairly kind of mundane local issues uh, into, kind of big national debates that end up with you know people on question time kind of talking about them. So let's just go back a
1: little bit on the low traffic neighbourhoods. Do I recall that during the pandemic lockdowns, the UK government actively encouraged the establishment of low traffic neighbourhoods so that uh, people would go out and exercise more and walk and, and cycle more was that was that do I recall Grant Shapps as Transport Secretary on a, a Covid press conference talking about that
0: yeah absolutely right and uh, and these were implemented in various places and in some places the protests uh, such as in Ealing for example were such that uh not only was the local council leader toppled in this but also they reversed all uh the ltns at great haste and famously and that was a labor council was it so that was a a labor council implementing a conservative government policy absolutely right and then there was a a, a, the, the council uh down in uh in shoreham uh, there was a main road between Brighton and Shorn where they put in a cycle lane and again that was a Tory council that then uh, removed it uh, very quickly even though it was proving very popular and lots of people were cycling uh, on the Shorn road. Same thing happened in uh, Kensington Chelsea where, uh, where I uh, I've, something dear to my heart because I was actually brought up just off Kensington High Street um, and uh, they implemented a, a cycle route through that. that. And that's an important cycle route because um, there's cycle routes kind of either way. There's cycle routes in Hammersmith and Fulham and, and some uh, cycle routes through Hyde Park. So uh, it was a kind of good connecting route. And they put in this cycle route, proved very popular, but after five weeks uh, with some pretty kind of bizarre consultation and, and you know campaigners as far away as new zealand kind of putting into the consultation reports they removed it and they've just actually had a court case about that and the campaigners in favor of uh, the cycle route actually lost out so the, what i what i find amazing about this is that these are such sort of local issues about particular streets and particular roads and uh, that They've become a national issue over because of the anger that's elicited by this,
1: and and presumably that is I think you alluded to that anger is stoked up on social media and it becomes a kind of culture war type of uh, issue.
0: I'm afraid so. And and interestingly enough, when you do get genuine consultations, um, uh, and and you know you look at the, the the proper ones from local people and stuff, they tend to be largely in in favour of this, and when some some Tory uh, councillors have stood on very strong anti-LTN kind of uh, manifestos, and they've largely lost out. You know, they're, they're barely. I don't can't think of anyone who's managed to uh, uh, upset have a political upset on the basis of being uh, anti-LTN and. You know, when you think of it, there's a a fundamental issue here, Mark, it's a very interesting, I think, political uh, uh, conundrum, right? If, uh, which I think is the way it should be looked at. If, say, uh, you know, 2,000 people live on the main road and 5,000 people live inside the LTN, is a very small disbenefit, and there might well be a disbenefit, to the 2,000 on the main road, uh the same as enormous benefit to the 5,000 in the ltn who are then more able to walk to their kids to school to cycle they have cleaner air they uh don't have so much traffic noise and so on and that's really the way one ought to look at this you know is the disbenefits versus the benefits and have a proper uh actually almost scientific kind of assessment of that but of course We don't do that. So what happens is that the people who shout loudest uh, tend to win on this. I mean, the same thing happened, Mark, in, in, you know, 20, 30 years ago, around controlled parking zones, where, you know, every time you tried to impose a controlled parking zone, people were up in the air because they uh, were, were, what suggested that, you know, I should be allowed to park outside my front door without uh, having to pay, as if it was a kind of basic human right. And actually, by and large, I mean, again, I live in a CPZ, uh, you know, without them, I'd have half of London parking in these streets to, to go into the local tube station and 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 uh, take take the trains and I, I wouldn't be able to- Sure, residents tend to resident clamor,
1: clamor for them now, don't they?
0: Yeah, in, absolutely, in people want situations. these CPZs, yeah. but there was always a noise. There was always Mr. Angry. I, I turned up to some of these meetings. Mr. Angry would get up and shout loudest.
1: Yeah, and then with the 15 minutes uh, uh, sort of- travel economic zones whatever the the idea is so so this is a a kind of um a sort of town planning concept is it really to to minimize use of um of motorized transport
0: Uh, absolutely and there's nobody's forcing anybody to do anything here you know it's quite funny because i did see a, 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 a demonstration in oxford about this and And they interviewed uh, one of the the people who was protesting. They obviously wasn't a local Oxford person because he didn't know anything about the, the local situation. And he, he was stumbling because he said, well, well, there's this 15 minute thing. But I think I, I looked at it on Google and, and they've sort of relented and they're, they're not actually going to stop people doing things. So I'm not really sure what I think about it. And you think, Why was this guy on a demonstration <laughs> if he didn't really know what he was demonstrating about? So, uh, he, I mean, it is, the, it is the terrible kind of impact of, of uh, social media that has stoked this up and, and moved us away from you know what could be a perfectly reasonable debate about you know benefits and disbenefits into into a culture war and and i think culture wars are by their nature kind of uh destructive and uh mask the real issues uh behind policies
1: in episode 4 of calling all stations we talked about the report from Conservative MP Chris Skidmore, who'd been commissioned by the UK government to undertake an independent review of the whole strategy towards reaching the net zero objectives. And uh, Chris Skidmore published his report, which contained over 100, I think it was in total 129, recommendations across all aspects of the economy and society on how the journey to to net zero could be achieved now yesterday the UK government in a swathe of net zero related announcements published a response to Mr Skidmore's 129 recommendations and Christian and I have been having a a bit of a look at these uh, because with particular reference to the transport recommendations, it's all a bit complicated uh, and there are uh, many, many strands to this. But um, the government has responded most energetically, I I think it's fair to say, on issues related to the decarbonisation of road transport and towards the um, easier and faster rollout of uh, electric vehicles. And they've also taken some new initiatives to uh, move forward their agenda on sustainable aviation fuels uh, as a way of making um, flying with a clear conscience a, a possibility in the future. We'll put the report onto our Twitter so that our listeners can have a look for themselves but i think the area that is a bit disappointing is in relation to chris skidmore's recommendations on rail because i can't help feeling that those responding have have tried to be a bit too clever here in that chris skidmore had a section of his report which was entitled accelerating rail electrification and freight Decarbonisation." And I'm a, I'm a bit of a, a an obsessive when it comes to electrification. I, I'm a big fan of of electrifying most, if not all, of the mainline railway network. But in when it came to the actual recommendations in the in uh, Chris Skidmore's report, he made a specific recommendation on freight, um, and it's that recommendation which the government has chosen to respond to in its own document that was published yesterday. And it's a good recommendation and the the response from the government is fine, but they've managed once again to give a swerve to this key issue of when and how will we see the electrification of the vast majority of Great Britain's mainline railway network
0: well, well why do you think they duck out of that because you know every, everything that we know about electrification is is it has enormous advantages it, it both uh speeds up the trains uh it obviously uh makes decarbonization kind of easier compared to uh diesel fuels and and uh, all that um and uh people like it uh, you know they traveling on electric trains is is definitely you know smoother uh, and so on so i mean it, and, and it's been proved in the past um, you know i like referring you know as a bit of a railway historian i like referring to uh, the between the wars period where uh, sir herbert walker who ran southern railway kind of electrified most of the of the network with a rolling program of electrification which made it kind of cheap so why do you think that they they're always reluctant to go there is it the capital cost you know what what is it or is it the the fact that really they'd like us to keep on using diesel what what is it
1: i can't believe that it's because of any great affection for for diesel um but i do think it's because of a, a deep skepticism around the deliverability and the fundability of electrification and to be fair to the UK Department for Transport and His Majesty's Treasury, they do have some basis for their scepticism when it comes yet again to this idea of how well you you set out on a on a project with a particular cost in mind and you set aside a budget for it. <laughs> <and> HS2 then, <laughs> all over again, yes. and it seems to end up costing half as much again or double what you were uh, what you were expecting well they got and
0: their fingers burnt on the on the great western the great western
1: is a, a spectacular example of this of course because towards the end of the labor government and carrying on into the coalition uh, government there was a the beginnings of a program of uh, a, a rolling program of electrification so yes the great western electrification scheme which was the beginnings uh, in some ways of a program of mainline rolling electrification did cause certain sharp intakes of breath because there were some very significant cost overruns and uh, delays to its introduction uh, and I think that may have sort of frightened uh, the higher echelons of government when it comes to further electrification but there have been studies done subsequently by rail industry bodies on how to reduce the costs of electrification and create greater certainty. And also as recently as in the last couple of weeks, there was a study from the Chartered Institute of Logistics and Transport that showed with fairly minimal investment in infill electrification schemes, filling in the gaps essentially between uh, lines that are already electrified, it would be possible to massively shift towards a decarbonised rail freight network uh, at really quite sort of modest costs. So, so yes, I think this is something which those of us that uh, are advocates for electrification have to keep chivving away on and never uh, never admit defeat, because it it clearly is a a very important uh, component of any decarbonisation and net zero strategy
0: yes i i mean i i note uh, that uh some of the emphasis on the report and indeed creation of a new fund is for carbon capture and as you know from our discussions you know i i'm a skeptic of technological fixes you know whether it's driverless cars or hyperloop or whatever and uh, carbon capture is one that's been around a long time um and uh again a bit like you know nuclear fusion or something you know it, it the cost of it seemed to outweigh any conceivable benefit and progress on it has been remarkably slow uh, but of course in terms of transport you know it, it's a it's a it's an obvious solution isn't it that if transport is going to emit a lot of uh, carbon and, and shipping is something which we, we haven't discussed much on this podcast, but that's kind of one of the uh, big issues. Yeah, uh, you know, if if uh, that that carbon ta- capture is going to have to be part of the solution, but do you think that we're anywhere anywhere closer to to managing to make that viable?
1: Well, certainly in this in this in the swathe of announcements yesterday, many of which I I haven't yet had a chance to to dive deeply into um carbon capture is a feature and something that the government uh, uk government clearly seems to be attracted to i think this is what one of the one of the curious things though is that um in some ways the government seems to be more attracted to technologies that are a long way from realization or further away from realization at, at least such as carbon capture um uh, sustainable aviation fuels autonomous vehicles on and this our, kind of, of thing podcast,
0: yeah In, indeed
1: rather than things that that we know how to do already uh, and that are within our grasp so we know how to electrify railways for example we know uh, how to build uh, tram systems um, we know how to encourage people to walk and cycle rather than use uh, a petrol or diesel driven car. So sometimes I think the the the, the solutions and the quick wins are closer to us than, than perhaps we
0: are, are led to believe. And In, indeed, I mean, uh, you know, wind farms uh, on land uh, are an obvious uh, technology that seems to be, very beneficial and we're good at wind we're less good at solar because we have less sun but that, that's another one and we don't need uh, to
1: wait for fusion in order to build uh, wind farms that's absolutely. right yes. absolutely yes <laughs> or or, yeah.
0: or clean hydrogen which is a, another thing which seems to be technically uh very complex and uh expensive but you know Mark, i <laughs> Look, this, this report is, is you know, there, there's some kind of positive aspects in the government's response. But, you know, in the meantime, you know, they did something this week that, you know, is questionable, ter- certainly in terms of, uh, you know, their aims towards net zero, which is they, they halved the cost of domestic passenger duty on flights, which, you know, will presumably have a, an impact uh, and, and encourage... Uh, some uh, new uh journey uh, routes to be opened up and encourage people to use uh existing ones and it, it does seem uh, rather strange i mean the as we discussed previously on this podcast you know the aviation industry does seem to have largely recovered from uh, uh the, its covid uh tribulations you know did it really need this kind of encouragement at a time when we're trying to to move away it certainly seems a kind of rather odd decision to go ahead with that um, at at this point in time while you're also kind of having a big emphasis towards net zero
1: sure I think the lag the lag time from this coming into effect is from as you rightly say a period when there was concern about the near collapse of the civil aviation industry during the pandemic and the need to get the, that industry moving again. Um, and now we find that according to a report published by Which, which is featured in the independent uh, uh, newspaper website, um, the, uh, the, the there's, this creates perverse incentive, shall we say, from a, an environmental perspective, to encourage people to make internal flights rather than uh, take the train. Uh, and that's in marked contrast to some other Comparable European countries, which are, are, are putting the incentives in the other direction. So, but I think what you could also see there uh, is that um, within all governments in all countries and which of, of whichever political persuasion, there are these tensions between the desire, the imperative to, to to take measures to safeguard the future of the environment and and the planet and civilization and uh, measures that, that are seen as necessary to encourage economic growth and uh, economic activity and, and, and a shorter term view of what uh, constitutes prosperity
0: and indeed I'm uh, uh, off by sustainable method of transport the uh, Eurostar to uh, France uh, this evening um, but you know again that's a uh, uh, a, a railway uh, line that is underused because of uh, other constraints where the trains and sometimes they can't even fill up the trains because there's constraints and so on. And there's you know, not much effort going into uh, ensuring that uh, they can boost that uh, the usage of the Eurostar um, and it's also very expensive. Um, in fact, I'm travelling on Friday night because it's so expensive that it's cheaper for me to travel on Friday night with my my family and grandsons or whatever, six of us, and stay in a hotel than travel on the Saturday morning. I mean, that, that sort of thing is is crazy that it's so expensive that it's actually worthwhile spending a night at a hotel uh, and and end up saving money. So there's a long way to go on all this, Mark. And
1: plenty more for us to discuss. Absolutely. Here's Christian's thought from the Departure Lounge. Uh,
0: Well, uh, I'm going to have a little dig about uh, private jets, uh, because a report by uh, Greenpeace uh, this week said that every six minutes Uh, a private jet kind of takes off from uh, uh, a UK airport. And, you know, these are kind of 50 times uh, less economic than uh, using the train and uh, even much less economic than using uh, commercial flights. And one of the big users of these private jets are football teams, um, you know, who, if, uh, you know, Manchester United are... Uh, playing Southampton or something they will fly down there um and uh you know use up a, a hell of a lot of uh, carbon and you know they could really set an example not to do that um you know and as a football fan you know I feel this uh quite personally and I'm very glad to be able to say Mark, that that my own team Queen's Park Rangers are quite well known for using the train and uh that they all pile into uh Hopefully, a first-class carriage uh, away from the fans, uh, but they're quite ready to uh, use the the train rather even than coaches or uh, their aeroplane. So uh, here's something for the football uh, fans to kind of lobby their teams about: you know, get them on the train rather than on the plane.
1: Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Coquitamas Limited production. If you've enjoyed our podcast, do give us a 5-star rating on whichever podcasting platform you use.